have this one country completely isolated from the rest of the region, especially in a region that is so sensitive to America's core interests in the region, is a bigger problem for the United States than it is for either the Saudis or the Emiratis. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Ben Pauker, FP's executive editor for The Web, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined by Stephen Cook and Simon Henderson. Stephen Cook is the Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He is the author of the new book, False Dawn, Protest, Democracy, and Violence in the New Middle East. Simon Henderson is the Baker Fellow and Director of the Gulf and Energy Policy Program at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. And Beth Dickinson joins us from Abu Dhabi. Beth is an FP columnist and Gulf-based DECA journalist. She is an associate editor at DevEx. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. Have episode ideas or comments? You can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. All right, so I'm thrilled to be surrounded by uh, a bunch of Middle East experts who can help me understand what the heck is going on in the Gulf right now. So we have the sort of ironically named Gulf Cooperation Council, <laughs> right? So Simon, help us help us explain. There's this been this crazy rift with Qatar. It's not particularly new, but it has reached a boiling point over the last week or so. Uh, my goodness, yes. Uh, the uh, rift with Qatar has blown apart the Gulf Cooperation Council. I doubt whether it can be put back together again. The GCC was established in 1981 as a device, essentially, with the encouragement of Washington and London uh, to keep the conservative Arab Gulf states out of the Iran-Iraq war. And it, it succeeded very well in that respect. Uh, and it is also a device uh, whereby uh, the US and Europe can support these countries now when there's chaos going on in Syria, Iraq, and there's always the mischief of Iran. And so it's been a very useful device. Then, lo and behold, we knew that there were internal tensions uh, within the GCC, but I always thought it would be Oman which would drop off if anyone was going to drop off, or maybe Kuwait, which has been rather independent on these things. But frankly, it's Qatar, and it's a huge deal. There was a bit of a diplomatic rift a couple of years ago when there was Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Bahrain withdrew their ambassadors from Doha. Even that was less than what it seems because some of the ambassadors weren't there anyway. But now we have a situation whereby they've broken off diplomatic relations and essentially uh, stopped uh, land routes, air routes and sea routes, which has really isolated Qatar, all because of, well, we didn't know. It just happened. And then eventually, they, a week ago, they produced 13 demands of 13 transgressions that they alleged the Qataris have made. So this is Qatar in part, or, or the reason that has been, this, the, the foremost reason that's come forward is that Qatar has been a supporter of 
terrorist groups, the Muslim Brotherhood, which is an existential threat to the Saudis and the UAE. Uh, they supported the Muslim Brotherhood during the years after the Egyptian revolution. Is, is that the, the genesis of this or, or is there a, a, a deeper sort of fight between the regimes that are ruling? You know, it's interesting what, what Simon just said, that he would have expected it would be Oman or the Kuwaitis because they've been independent of – more independent of the Saudis and the Emiratis than uh, than even the Qataris, which would suggest that there's something else that, that's going on. It can't just possibly be the Muslim Brotherhood. It can't just possibly be Hamas. If you go back to the second intifada, the Saudis were holding telethons for Hamas suicide bombers' families. Let's remember who hijacked planes on September 11th. So, yes, there are issues with which the Qataris have been, how shall I say, diplomatically um, not as careful. But it's not anything that some of these other allies in the region, and I'll include Egypt because it's part of this conflict as well, aren't guilty of. But what we have seen over the years, and if we look at this historically, the Al Nahyan, who run the United Arab Emirates, and the Athani, who run uh, the state of Qatar, don't like each other very much. And the Al Sud and the Athani, they don't like each other. These very are the much. ruling. These families. are the ruling families. I mean, this is this is not a group of people you want to be at your Thanksgiving dinner table uh, because they're at each other's throats. And Qatar, the Athani, run this tiny place that has a lot of cash. And has been able to translate that cash into regional influence. And unlike Bahrain, Qatar isn't a wholly owned subsidiary of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And this, I think, drives the Saudis and the Emiratis crazy because they need these smaller states to toe the line. We need a couple of figures here. Qatar notionally has a population of around 2 million. The number of actual citizens is probably of the order of 250,000. There Ten times as many people doing the washing up and building football stadia and things like this. But Qatar's real ace is that it is the third largest um, possessor of natural gas in the world. This, uh, after Iran and Russia, uh, the league table is tiny Qatar. Uh, so it has an incredible wealth. It has the largest GDP per capita in the world. There's one drawback. It's a big, big drawback. This gas is in an offshore field stuck there in the middle of the Persian Gulf. That field is contiguous with Iran's field. It is one field. Uh, They share their greatest asset with Iran. This uh, makes them very nervous, as anyone would be. So it sort of explains uh, how they keep on juggling their diplomatic ties just to keep everybody on edge or off balance. The one consistency is that they want to retain a strong relationship with the United States, and they do this by providing the Al Udaid airbase uh, in south of. Doha, the capital. It has a gigantic runway and it has huge areas where aircraft can park. And it has something called a KAOC, a Combined Air Operations Center. And it's from this base 
uh, since 2003. The operations in Afghanistan have been run and controlled, in Iraq have been run and controlled, and now the operations against ISIS in Iraq and Syria are being run and controlled. So, if Beth, I can jump in, yeah, please. Yeah, um, you know, I, I I think it's interesting because coming from um, sort of the perspective of being of living out here in the Gulf, I have to say that for me it was not necessarily a surprise that this rift happened. Um, I think it's something that's been building for a very long time. And of course, it's not that one predicted that it would be on this day or at this time. But I think over the last few months, particularly, you've really seen a very specific regional axis of policy um, revolving around Saudi Arabia, but very closely as well, the UAE. And, and sort of the maxim of this, of this political axis is stability in the region. And stability above all else, one can argue, is sort of their you know, reigning goal. That means stability in Egypt, which of course means likely the, the repression of the Muslim Brotherhood. That means stability across North Africa, stability in Syria, stability elsewhere. And really, you know, we spoke about the size of the Qatari population and sort of the disproportionate influence that it's been able to build throughout the region. Really, it, Qatar in many ways was really just sort of a thorn in the side of this emerging coalition because Qatar was very much on the side of um, many of the proponents and, and, and uh, protesters protagonists of the Arab Spring that were very much against stability. That was their whole, you know, raison d'etre, which was that, you know, they wanted to break the stability of these dictatorships across the Middle East. Well, now is not the time for that sort of turmoil, is what uh, this sort of new Saudi-led axis is saying. And Qatar really needs to stop this, this mischief, this sort of mayhem that they're causing. And so I think in, in really in those eyes, taking these steps was done in an effort to sort of consolidate um, the Saudi sort of regional direction of policy. And, and this is really a way of saying, you know, we're going to set some ground rules in the region and we're not going to tolerate Qatar behaving in its normal fashion. Now, whether that will succeed is a whole other question. But um, I think it's also important to look at this in the context of the succession changes that have just happened in Saudi Arabia. We have a new crown prince who's coming to coming into office and very much trying to sort of start from day one, walking into the office and being like, look, guys, this is how we're going to play ball. It's not going to be like it was before. These are the rules under which we're going to operate. Uh, so I think it's very important, the timing of this whole thing, that it comes when Saudi Arabia named a new crown prince who will likely be running the country for many, many decades to come. I think the U.S. succession probably plays an interesting role here as well. Um, Indeed. Uh, so I, I think it goes. I think that goes without saying that, you know, the president of the United States went to Riyadh in May and mouthed the words that Saudi and Emirati officials have been wanting a president of the United States to say for the better part of the last eight years. And certainly you could just tell that President Trump felt that there was a meeting of the minds between him and the leaders of, of, of Saudi Arabia. Uh, in fact, just as an aside, a, a friend of mine, a Saudi friend of mine said just before the president's visit, he said, we understand President Trump. He likes bling. We're going to give him bling. And that seemed to be what their strategy was. And I think he then left Saudi Arabia and they felt emboldened that he would provide them support. But I, I wanted to ask – I wanted to ask – Or that he wouldn't jump right back in to dial down the tensions. He would right. let some of these right. sort of maximalist positions play out. But we've, we've spent a lot of time in Washington talking about the Saudis in this. But Elizabeth, you're out there in Abu Dhabi and my, my spidey sense tells me – that there's a bigger Emirati story behind this 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 episode, 
And I'm wondering if you, if, mm. if my spidey sense is, is, is correct, that Mohammed bin Zayed, the crown prince of, uh, of Abu Dhabi, has been unhappy with the situation in Qatar and what the Qataris have been up to around the region, or at least their perception. And now with Mohammed bin Salman in this position of power, there seems to be— This is a, the 31-year-old year crown prince, of Saudi, prince of Saudi Arabia. That there is yeah. um, an opportunity for, for, for the, the two of them and others, uh, and let's not forget the Egyptian aspect of this, um, only because I wrote a book about Egypt. Um, but— We'll get to we'll get to your book. We'll get to your book plugs. It's okay, it's I okay. It's, I'm just kidding. So, so what do you think? I think you're really onto something there. Um, I think that um, there's been this incredible synergy between the new crown prince in Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, and the ruler of Abu Dhabi, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed. This is sort of a, the closest, I would say, that Emirati and Saudi foreign policy has really been in recent memory. Um, and they're sort of step in step on this. So absolutely, the Emiratis are the party that has sort of the, the largest list of grievances with Qatar. And this is a longstanding rift. It, it stems primarily from the Muslim Brotherhood, but not entirely. Um, I remember, you know, in, in back in 2013, 2014, when I would go to Doha, um, in one of the hotels that I stayed in, I would see, um, you know, fugitive members of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood eating breakfast because they lived in the hotel. Um, so there are very clear grievances, you know, the UAE at that time was very much supporting the government of um, General Sisi, who then became President Sisi, who was trying to consolidate and, and sort of bring it, Egypt back under sort of some sort of uh, umbrella of control. They felt that Qatar was really undermining that. And so uh, there there did become this sort of personal level of grievance. And, and so when we talk about who's sort of driving, for example, the list of demands, definitely I would say that that list of demands is very closely linked to what I would have expected the Emiratis to say they're annoyed with Qatar about. Uh, for example, there's a list of individuals like these fugitives that I used to see at this roaming around these hotels that they want Qatar to expel. And that's very much a list of people who have undermined um, their foreign policy goals in the region. So a number of clerics, um, again, sort of uh, political Islamists from throughout Egypt and North Africa. Um, and, and it's really, it, it's very clear uh, that they are the drivers of, of much of that policy. I mean, there's also person, you know, there's actual person-to-person -person bad blood. The Saudis and the and the Emirati has launched a, what, a, a board of coup back in the 90s to try they and... Plotted they plotted one, and, one. and they hired several hundred tribesmen uh, to enact the coup. This was back in 1995 when the then emir was overthrown by his son, uh, Sheikh Hamad. Uh, uh, Sheikh Hamad was the chap who then ruled through until 2013 when he abdicated in favor of uh, Amir Tamim. Hamad is still very much on the scene as the father Amir. But back in 1995, uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis, and I believe the Bahrainis as well, were all involved in trying to organize a coup against Hamad. And it never happened because one of the tribesmen they rented decided to uh, see what he could get for the information. <laughs> but there were certainly arms. There was an arms dump there. And there was an intention to seize palaces and shoot leading members members of the Qatari royal family. This 1995, perhaps in Washington terms, is quite a long time ago. In the perspective of the Qataris, it's like yesterday. Yeah, I'd be pissed too if someone tried to come and burn my house down. Even if it was 20 years ago, I don't think I'd forget quite quickly. And there are suspicions in 
both Saudi Arabia and the Emirates that that Sheikh Hamid is is still the man calling the shots in 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 Doha, and it only fuels their mistrust of uh, of Qatari intentions. So, Beth, one of the things that I've heard in talking to some people about this, and it hasn't been widely reported on, is that economics could be behind this as well. You know, the uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis are hurting from $45 oil. They are working to impose a value-added tax uh, and they have stopped their, you know, subsidies um, – you know that have been incredibly generous have been curtailed. I've heard, and and you know maybe you can help me figure out if this is true that the Qataris have been offering bargain basement rates for corporations in Doha. You know they're still subsidizing uh, their airline, uh, apparently undercutting the rates of uh, Emirates and Etihad, and that has provoked a lot of resentment. Yeah, I think I, I'm sure that's a piece of it. I think it's probably a fairly minor component in the scheme of things. Uh, but what we could say for sure is that particularly in Saudi Arabia, again, with the sort of changes in succession, doing something like this certainly draws attention away from the economic situation and toward, uh, you know, issues that, that a lot of Gulfis frankly, have quite strong feelings about. So this has been very much discussed in the public space, and it's sort of um, overshadowed pretty much all other issues on social media recently. So I'm not saying that they're wagging, you know, wagging the dog by the tail, but I am saying that, you know, I, I think that there is that component to it that, you know, this is a way to sort of bring everyone on board nationally within Saudi Arabia and the UAE in terms of sort of a common cause. Actually, you know, the economic side of it is really interesting from sort of the Qatari perspective, because one of the biggest risks for Qatar in this crisis has to do with the very rarely thought of commodity of cement, which is in fact in short supply in Qatar. And the um, the base material for cement comes through the GCC, the rest of the Gulf, into Qatar. And if they don't have enough supply of that for a long enough time, the construction on their massive infrastructure investment for the World Cup is going to fall behind. Um, as we know from following sort of big sporting events like this, falling behind on construction is really not a good thing <laughs> because it's very hard to catch up when you have to build so much infrastructure so quickly. That is a really big risk. And actually, I think one of the major screws that the UAE and, and Saudi Arabia have been able to turn on Qatar. And, and those aspects of it are sort of the little noticed pressure points that could really make a big difference. But Qatar is not without some friends here, right? Steve, um, Turkey stepped in and moved, what, a couple thousand troops into the region. Iran has offered to, and I think almost immediately offered to start sending food shipments since Qatar is almost entirely responsible on imported food. So there are some friends, but walk us through that the sort of bizarre relationship with Turkey. And then let's maybe get to the Iran side of the equation and the whole Sunni Shia side. I, I will let... Uh Steve talk mostly about uh, Turkey, but there's a historical detail which is fascinating, that the Ottoman Turks uh, used to have a presence in the territory which is now Qatar. And so historically, uh, there's every reason why today's Qatar should despise the Turks. And it's one of the many ironies of all this, that it's now Turkey uh, which is making gestures of support 
to Qatar. And in Qatari social media, they were welcoming back their brother Ottoman <laughs> when this all happened. Um, it, it is something that has occurred over the course of the last six or so years that the Turks and the Qataris have viewed changes or potential changes around the region in very similar terms, that the changes in Egypt, the changes in Tunisia, potential changes in, in, in Syria are to the advantage of those who can uh, get into those places, invest in them, and that this is a way of augmenting influence around the region. And so with this kind of common worldview, as well as an, an ideological affinity, uh, has come growing commercial ties and security ties between the Turks and the Qataris. And the Turks, we, we've talked about Al-Uded airbase and how huge it is. Uh, the Turks have established their own base in, in Qatar and uh, have a contingent of soldiers there. The last deployment— For the purpose of what? For the Qataris, it is just another option. Sure. They have been isolated. This is not the first incident. They need friends around the world. The Turks, for all of their problems, still second largest military in NATO, influential country in, in the West and the Middle East. For the Turks, the Turks see themselves as natural leaders of the region. They don't read the region very well because they're cut off from their own history. How many Turks Well, they read? also don't read the language. They don't <laughs> – and, and they're cut off from their own language. They're cut off from Ottoman – uh, Turkish. So they don't understand their own history. So in the Justice and Development Party, this party that has ruled Turkey since 2002 at the, under the leadership of, of Recep Tayyip Erdogan, in their imagination, what the Ottoman Empire did in the region and what it represents is positive. So they see themselves as a natural leader of the region and they see these countries as essentially ephemeral and that the future lies with a kind of Muslim kinship, asabiyah in, 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 in Arabic. And so they have moved with alacrity to help their, their Qatari friends on principle uh, that what the Saudis and the Emiratis have done is, uh, is, is, is not right that uh, the countries have been on the right side of many things. They're on the right side of the Egyptian coup, not coup divide. Uh, they've helped in Tunisia constructively, as have the Turks. They, they perceive themselves this way. So not long after this happened, I think within five days or so, Qatari supermarkets uh, were filled with Turkish dairy products. And you had a deployment, a, a small deployment of additional for Turkish forces. I think it was 30 soldiers and five armored cars showed up in, uh, in, in, in Doha. What is interesting about it is that the Turks had just repaired their relations with the Saudis and the Emiratis. I mean, it wasn't great. Uh, there was a lot of distrust there. But the Turks had worked assiduously to reestablish uh, relations that were really soured over the uh, coup in Egypt in July 2013. Beth, you'd written for us previously about the Gulf funding for some of the most unsavory groups that are involved in uh, the Syrian conflict. Are the reports that Qatar was still abetting this this funding for al-Qaeda uh, and other groups in Syria, uh, is that true? And, and there's also this crazy story I'm sure you guys saw about this uh, Qatari royal falconing party that happened to be on a, a trip back, I think, in 2015 in Iraq, which is apparently a great place to go falconing. Um, I would pick someplace <laughs> it is. else. You might, it is. I, you, know, you know, as things it's the turned best, out, but I might you know. go to the second best. <laughs> yeah, as things turned out, they were kidnapped by Al Qaeda affiliate, and then apparently ransomed for the tune of one billion dollars. Much of that that was then funneled through Iran, which of course pissed off. 
the Saudis and the Emiratis because they're funding. Yeah. This Qatari money was then going to fund Iran, was going to fund al-Qaeda, an, an enemy. So um, that that's part of this argument. But, but is Qatar, had hmm. they still been funding? Goodness, you've given me a lot to work with there. Um. <laughs> you can start with the falconing. Uh. <laughs> I know it's one of your hobbies. The Rock Lonely Planet has a warning. You may be kidnapped by al-Qaeda if you go falcon. <laughs> Only in a certain season. You got to go for the right season. <laughs> that's right. That's um, <laughs> listen, you know, just first to to add one point to this I, uh, this issue of um, Qatar and Turkey. You know, uh, suddenly having this sort of close relationship. You know, I think one of the reasons it was so easy for them to sort of scale up this relationship, both in terms of like getting milk on the shelves and also in terms of you know uh, this military alliances. That this has been the de facto reality since 2011. You know, when the Qataris wanted to support someone in Syria, the Turks. They worked with the Turks. So there was an operational functionality, day-to-day, military-to-military, government-to-government relationship that had been built in places elsewhere in the Middle East, in Egypt, in Syria, uh, you know, that is, is it ended up sort of really growing into something very strong. Um, so, again, this is sort of not a new relationship at all. Um, as to the issue of funding... Look, the Falcon thing was just the late, the last straw in a string of incidents. Um, I think one of the things that Qatar did in the Syrian conflict that really angered particularly the UAE, but also Saudi Arabia and, and also, frankly, many Western allies, um, is that Qatar was a hostage negotiator. Um, so they served this potentially very used to, useful role of trying to get various parties released by other parties that, you know, they had some sort of tangential intelligence or other relationship with. And in the course of doing that, they ended up paying several ransoms, including uh, one of several hundred million dollars to an al-Qaeda-linked Syrian rebel group. There was another case in which uh, a number of nuns were freed from Syria and another ransom was paid. So this is is sort of a pattern. The incident in Iraq, um, I have heard a different number in terms of what amount was paid. But it is clear that there is something that was going on in the way that Qatar was negotiating some of these deals that, you know, the, uh, other countries in the region felt that this was not a very responsible way to conduct business. Private individuals, clerics and sort of other interest groups who wanted to fund rebels in Syria, meanwhile, they did find very permissive territory in Qatar. And there's a lot of debate over whether that was a matter of Qatar doesn't have the capacity to clamp down on terror finance because, frankly, it doesn't have the institutions, which is a reality. And it is really technically challenging to find some of these things. But there's also an aspect of, okay, do you really want to find it? And when Treasury calls you and points out someone who is undertaking problematic transactions, do you go after them in a way that's appropriate? Um, And I think this was a frustration that I've heard also from the U.S. side, that the Qataris rarely took action against anyone unless it was brought to a very high level by Western authorities, you know, saying you really need to sort of shut down this operation. So what you had happened throughout the Syrian conflict and continuing to this day is and clerics throughout the region would use Qatar as sort of an, an open place to sort of spread their message and uh, lay the groundwork with various individuals who would be willing to contribute to the cause of one or another rebel group. Um, so, yeah, this is a real concern. It, it definitely is. Speaking of high Western officials, it seems like even in the response to this crisis, there's been somewhat of a, a rift uh, or a difference of at least public opinion between the State Department and Rex Tillerson and Trump, who you know immediately was tweeting out things like Qatar is very bad, um, and Tillerson, who seemed to 
and perhaps rightly so, adopt a more diplomatic approach. What leverage does the U.S. have at this point to step in and what, what is the sort of intentions of the administration right now? The administration? Ah, that's an interesting concept. Uh, <laughs> Speaking might, with one clear voice, yes, I see where you're uh, going, yeah. Uh, it might not sound like it, but I am a U.S. citizen, so I can opine that's, that's on this. That's a Brooklyn accent, right? <laughs> <laughs> the crisis started with a lot of confusion, uh, not only here in Washington, but in the rest of the world, thinking, what the hell is going on in Washington? Is there a deliberate schism, or is that just the way the new Washington works? I tend to take the latter view. Now it would appear uh, that Secretary of State Tillerson and Secretary of Defense Mattis uh, have this portfolio in their hands, and uh, the president, at least for the moment, and I hesitate to say how long this moment will last, um, isn't making unhelpful tweets. Uh, They're mostly... At, he's at focused Mika on Brzezinski, CNN and yeah. MSNBC, yeah. right? He perhaps has other targets, as you suggest. It's clear that Tillerson wants to do is to mediate between uh, both sides. Uh, we have, an, uh, frankly, a diplomatic absurd situation of the Saudis, the Emiratis, Bahrain and Egypt presenting a list of 13 demands uh, which they want Qatar to meet in 10 days, which is on Monday, and, uh, and, then, uh, and there should be no negotiation on this. The Qataris have already said the demands are, un are unmeetable. I mean, they're, they're ridiculous demands. This is, you know... Well, it seems to me yeah. that they are, they are extreme demands, and the notion that you can't negotiate on them or at least discuss them is uh, absurd. And Tillerson clearly thinks it's absurd as well. Uh, the Qataris have, I think, either themselves or uh, perhaps taken some good advice, have played this one quite well. The list of demands was presented. The Qataris uh, promptly published it. The result was uh, all of us, uh, plus the wider public out there, could read the list and come to their own conclusions on the whether they were sensible or, as you suggest, they were absurd. Well, some of them are just impossible. Shutting down all of all Al Jazeera and other media entities, or, paying, or paying an compensation. An undisclosed uh, amount of compensation, right, for loss of life and other financial losses caused, caused by Qatar's policies in recent years. I think of of the thirteen, eight of them are are total non-starters, and the remaining are just non-starters. It's clear that each country kind of tallied up what their biggest complaint was and <laughs> right. threw them into like the basket. Put them in a suggestion right. box, it, it, exactly. and we'll just you well know, copy paste. Uh, yes, but they did it two and a half weeks down the road, having created the crisis and broken up diplomatic relations. Tillerson and other uh, world figures uh, said, "Well, what do you want out of all this?" And it seems as though the Emiratis and the Saudis thought, oh, um, yes, maybe we should assemble a list. And so, frankly, it's a shopping list, a laundry list of pretty well anything and everything. So I think the way it gets resolved is Tillerson will come up with his own list of things that the Qataris may be able to move on that will ultimately satisfy the Saudis and the Emiratis. The question is whether he will be empowered to do that. You never know when the president or the White House are going to jump back into this 
and and undermine whatever it is that Tillerson's doing. I think though we should be we should be happy that at least Tillerson is engaged on this issue because he does have long experience in Saudi Arabia. He does have long experience with the Qataris. It's going to have to be – I don't think the United States is going to be able to impose anything on these countries. But they're gonna, it's going to have to be an American effort to fashion a set of – I don't want to call them demands – a set of criteria that all of these countries are going to have to agree on for – them to move forward. But I, I'm afraid that this crisis is one of the things that has, as, as Simon started with this, the Gulf Cooperation Council basically no longer really exists in, in that way. The Qataris will continue to be isolated no matter how this thing is resolved. I think there is an alternative scenario in which actually Qatar just essentially gets de facto pushed out of the Gulf Cooperation Council. Um, and I think in many ways that could actually be not so unfavorable of an outcome for the Saudis and the Emiratis in the sense that it would basically just bring into the public what's been a reality for some time, which is that they're not cooperating. So Saudi and the UAE and Qatar militarily, they're not cooperating. They sit down in meetings, they shake hands, they're not cooperating, they're not coordinating. But isn't that they're the history not- of the GCC from its beginning? It is. Um, I think, though, that because of this new synergy between the UAE and Saudi Arabia, that Perhaps the rest of the GCC, because, of course, they can bully Bahrain and Kuwait will sort of string along for the ride, um, that you could actually have somewhat better coordination between the remaining five members. Well, four, because Oman has always done its own thing. In any case, I, I guess I, I think that there is a scenario in which Qatar just goes its own way and, and, and everyone just says, OK, we're happy to part ways. And, and you know, now it's just in public what's been, you know, we've, what we've all been thinking this whole time. I, I accept that. The scenario, but I think it's disastrous for U.S. policy, and it's disastrous, frankly, for all the Gulf Arab so, states. So, yeah, explain why this why this matters, because I know that to some listeners it might seem like you know internecine struggles in a far off part of the world where it's two hundred thousand Qataris angry at four hundred five hundred thousand Emiratis. Um, so, why is it such a big deal for U.S. policy? Well, I have to use that dreadful expression called oil. Most of the world's oil is in the Persian Gulf region. A huge amount of the world's daily exports of oil come from the Gulf region and head off principally in the direction of Asia. So the Persian Gulf is significant for that. It's the role of the U.S. to make sure, or it has been the role, to make sure diplomatically and if necessarily militarily, that flow of oil continues smoothly. It's a term called energy security. The countries of the Gulf, at least in name, say they're in favor of the f- flow of oil. The Iranians have a di- a particular concept, though. They regard the security of the Persian Gulf to be a concern of the countries of the Persian Gulf. That formulation does not include the words the United States, and in particular, it doesn't include the words the United States Navy. And frankly, the US Navy, along with Uh, smaller components from allied navies are the thing which makes peace uh, possible in the Persian Gulf and makes the the Persian Gulf uh, 
a, a benefit for the world economy rather than uh, a danger and an obstacle. I think you know it's possible to agree with both Beth and Simon on this. Uh, if you take a look at some of the statements that Anwar Gargash, the Minister of State for Foreign Affairs of the United Arab Emirates, have made, in, in looking at this deadline of 10 days, he's basically said, we don't want a, a Trojan horse in our midst and a, a, essentially we'll turn our back on the, on the Qataris. And it might be fine for the Qataris to go their own ways from the perspective of the Emiratis and the Saudis. But Simon's absolutely right. We are concerned concerned about the continued free flow of energy out of the region. We have that huge base in in Doha where we do a tremendous amount. I mean, we run uh, military operations in the region from there. The Qataris are involved with us in places as far away as Libya. I mean, they're, they're flying missions from Suda Bay and Crete. So um, to have this one country completely isolated from the rest of the region, especially in a region that is so sensitive to America's core interests in the region, is a bigger problem for the United States than it is for either the Saudis or the Emiratis. And that's why Tillerson is expending uh, significant energy on trying to resolve this. I mean, the one thing that I see is that even if even if Qatar gets kicked out of the GCC, the tensions aren't resolved here. You know, the bad feelings are going to linger. They'll still remember the aborted coup of 1995. They're going to remember this incident. The Qataris will be pissed and they still have their own interests to represent. So, you know, is it possible that on Tuesday you'd see, you know, the Qataris don't accept the demands. Tillerson and his team can't get an uh, acceptable list out there in time and that you'll see, you know, Tanks rolling in to Qatar or, or an, an attempted sort of encircling I, I, of that. I well, almost we got some, uh, sorry, Liz, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say we just we got some we got a few clues about what could happen next um, today, actually, from the UAE's ambassador to Russia, uh, who who said that uh, probably the next step in terms of pressure would be asking Qatar's Western allies to choose between Qatar and. Saudi Arabia, UAE, and this coalition. So essentially, that would mean asking the U.S. to move the base. It would mean asking, you know, other allies to sort of choose us or them, um, and also businesses where you know you have sort of global corporations. You know, the Microsofts, the Googles, the Facebooks. You know, sure, you can have an office in Doha, but you're going to have to close your office in Dubai. That it's hard to imagine that level of pressure, but it it does seem clear that in this crisis, they are ready to exert sort of every put every card on the table table, if you will. It's worrying that they prepare to come up with these sort of ideas, and apparently they haven't thought them through. To go back to uh, your point about will tanks roll, I don't think they will, but I do have a fear that the Saudis will give the instruction, the order, head to Doha. The only saving grace here is that I don't think Saudi armoured units are competent enough to get all the way there <laughs> to get even half the way there. they can't even knock over a 7-eleven in Sana'a so I, you know I can't imagine them moving into into Qatar but I think that you know what what ambassador Omar Ghobash had said which which Beth pointed out it doesn't actually help the Emirati or Saudi case uh, I don't think that the that Rex Tillerson is going to look kindly on the fact that these countries are essentially blackmailing the United States and major multinational corporations. This is, again, one of these, I think, miscalculations on the part of both the Emiratis and the Saudis. Uh, and this isn't to excuse the Qatari behavior, but the idea that this will force the United States to actually end its mediating role, given the importance of its interests in the region 
and and just side with them and that major corporations – it may be easier for Microsoft to give up an office in Doha. I mean, I'm not even sure what goes on in Doha anyway. But, uh, but certainly this kind of demanding that the United States choose. I think the U.S. military would choose the Qataris. I mean, Al-Udaid is an enormous asset to the United States. The, the, the Pentagon has wanted a second runway there. Oh, by the way, the Qataris are building one. It'll be ready in January. I, I think it's a miscalculation on their part if they're going to go down that road. Well, I'll tell you one company that doesn't uh, have to usually choose size, and that's ExxonMobil. So I think Tillerson, if anyone probably has experience dealing with uh, angry, oil-rich countries and making them see the, the mutual benefit of working together. And I think on that little cliffhanger, I think we're going to have to wait till Monday and see what pans out. Maybe we'll all get back together again if the tanks start rolling. Uh, So once again, thank you to Simon, to Steve, Beth, and Abu Dhabi. Thank you guys all for this conversation. ER nerds, thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Ben Pauker, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us.